And I think when governments try to restrict art, it's actually those governments that have maybe even more clearly than other institutions or other countries or other governments understood how powerful the arts can be. What are the main struggles of being an artist in Europe today? The pandemic has been horrendous for many aspects of our lives. It has aggravated the dire situation of artists and cultural workers across Europe. For many years now, we have witnessed how spaces for arts and culture are shrinking and how artists are facing growing restrictions. But art is powerful. Culture is essential for a society's survival. In this episode, we discuss the day-to-day -day challenges artists face and how they can be better supported by funders and policymakers. This episode is part of the project Europe Takes Part. Europe Takes Part supports artists and cultural workers in Europe by raising awareness of their situation and empowering them through digital tools. In co-creative workshops, 30 artists from all over Europe develop digital tools to support them in their daily work. My name is Raffaele Hoppach and you are listening to Talking Progress, a podcast by Das Progressive Zentrum. This podcast explores new ideas for social progress in Germany, Europe and transatlantic spaces. Today we talk about the situation of artists and cultural workers in Europe. What is their role in society? What are their current challenges? And what do innovative approaches in the arts and culture sector look like? We are sitting down today with Anastasia Lemberg-Lorva and Gitte Choch, two women with very different backgrounds. Both have great insight into the arts and culture sector in Europe and bring unique perspectives and experiences to the table. Anastasia Lemberg-Lorva is an artist and founder of the project Die Struktura. Die Struktura is a pan-European initiative that aims to create more opportunities for young people in the art sector. Originally from Moscow, Anastasia has received training in Belgium, the Netherlands, Russia, Estonia, and is currently based in Finland. Her Destructura flagship project will gather 150 aspiring professionals in the fields of visual and performing arts. Gitte Choch is Secretary General of IFA, das Institut für Auslandsbeziehungen, which is German for Institute for Foreign Relations. IFA works with partners worldwide for freedom in the arts, science, and civil society. They support artistic and cultural exchange and act as a center of excellence for international cultural relations. Anastasia, Gitte, welcome to our podcast. And it's really nice that you are here with us today and willing to share your experiences. Hi, happy to be here. Hello, very nice to be with you. I'm very excited to talk With the two of you, let's jump right into today's topic. Our project, Europe Takes Part, is about strengthening artists and cultural workers in Europe. And what we want to do with it is to oppose shrinking spaces in the arts and culture sector. The term shrinking spaces refers to the increasing restriction of civil society's scope for action. For example, the restriction of artistic freedom. So Anastasia, Gitte, 
What does the term shrinking spaces mean to you? Do you have any personal experience with it? Anastasia, maybe you want to start? Yeah, I was thinking about this and I have quite a few associations with shrinking spaces. The very first one has to do with the pandemic. Um, we used to see the uh, city or a town as a playground for artists. You can go to galleries, you can see exhibitions in office spaces, in shopping centers, and then all of a sudden, bam, it shrank to the online space or just walking around and trying to look into windows, which gave some room to creativity. For example, the gallery I worked for, Coco Gallery, when the pandemic hit for um, the nth time, we decided to put some binoculars on the windowsill of, on the outside of the gallery so that people could, when it's dark outside in the evening, take the binoculars and look into the gallery where the lights were on. So it, yeah, it gave us room for creativity, but it took away quite a lot of the spaces that we used to use for seeing the arts and interacting with them. And one that is another association that has to do more with um, my experience in general, you see a lot or you hear a lot about young people's experiences. And it seems that you have to fit a... Um, more and more narrow mold in order to be taken seriously in the art world. As a young person, you have to know this certain kind of people, you have to go to certain kind of places. And it seems that more and more opportunities are being made available to a smaller and smaller group of people. And that was the second association with Shrinking Spaces for me. Thank you for these two really interesting insights. Gitte, what is your view on Shrinking Spaces in Europe? Thanks um, for the question. And Anastasia, I also thought along the same lines as you, um, thinking about shrinking, what has shrunk recently? Um, so I also looked at physical spaces and the fact that if you go to a theater, go to see a theater production today, there are less people in the room than before the pandemic. And so crowds, communities have definitely quite literally shrunk. I think there's also um, a beauty in it because it creates an intimacy um, that might not have been there before. Um, but of course, it also makes art even more, yeah, not necessarily elitist, but I think what Anastasia was also referring to that um, opportunities are available for less and less people. In a way, you know, now when you go to see a theater production, it's sold out quite quickly, for instance. And then who are the ones who actually still go now to see um, productions, for instance, or to, who go to a gallery? And so, yeah, the question of access um, has maybe been um, underlined in a new way now. Um, Rafaela, when you made your introductory statement about what shrinking spaces are, you also talked about yeah, the restriction of freedom of um, or artistic freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of the of the press. And I thought about that as well, because I think what we are seeing is that um, groups of people are becoming more political or maybe more vocal also about um ideologies. I think borders between thoughts or ideas are more apparent than before. I think there are also more countries where governments are restricting um, the arts. And I think this is um, a development that has been unfolding for the past years. And um, it's, it's frightening in a way. 
I have worked in countries. Uh, you mentioned that I was working in Kinshasa, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, where there is an environment that is not necessarily supportive to the arts. And what uh, we see there is that arts do continue. People go and produce art, and it um, and the the uh, powerful potential that arts can develop comes more into play in those environments. And I think when governments try to restrict art, it's actually those governments that have maybe even more clearly than other institutions or other countries or other governments understood how powerful the arts can be. That's interesting to hear and kind of fits perfectly to my next question because I wanted to ask you about the role of artists and cultural exchange in a society. So the topic of the role of um, of art in society was raised a lot in our Europe Tax Part workshops. And I would be interested to hear what you think their role should be and to what extent this is realized right now. Gitte, would you like to, to go on? I thought I would uh, let Anastasia answer because she's the artist. <laughs> so Then we let uh, the artist start. I am from Russia. <laughs> And I have uh, friends from Ukraine, Belarus, Turkey, and a lot of friends from EU member states. And my own background is mixed in that sense. I grew up in Russia until I was 14, and then I moved to Estonia and started moving around European states. So combining those outlooks of an EU member state and of a European state that is not in the EU... I have come to see an artist's role as, as free as possible. Meaning, even when you start talking about who is an artist nowadays, there is no definition. Basically, you can throw around sentences like, um, an artist tells you when he's an artist or an art piece is, is one when an, art, when an artist states it is one. And that leaves a lot of room for exploration. You can connect any field of life or any industry to creative thinking and to allow people who are good at combining different things or maybe good at processing different thoughts or good at putting on a canvas their impression of societal shifts. You have people who are good at very different things, but they're still a form of artistic expression and I feel that interesting pieces I have seen recently are a combination of very different factors put through the prism of the brain and the eyes and the hands of an artist. And as a very global sort of understanding of an artist, I would say this, a person who is able through the prism of their own being to kind of show an a perspective that is new or to combine things in a way that is new or to shed light on something that is um, left aside or even show something very familiar in a new light. I think being critical of what's happening around them and being analytical about things that they know and understand and presenting their understanding in a way that speaks to the audience. Maybe it says a different thing to the audience, but it starts speaking to them. And I recently have been thinking a lot about artist versus propaganda machine um, bit. And I think we're going to talk about funding, but there is a lot of debate about where 
money goes, especially in states where freedom is restricted because of political processes. Films being made for insane amounts of money that have very little, very little artistic value and that become a sieve for um, giving funds to a certain group of people. Are we still calling those people artists? Yes, we do on paper, but do we want to dig further than just what's on paper? And then on the other hand, you have very talented um, individuals who are stuck in their studios or have a very particular understanding of the world and want to pour it out on canvas or whatever medium they use, but maybe they are shy or not good at networking and you never get to see this. I've been thinking a lot about this huge disparity between what gets shown and the value of what it is and what gets left behind and the value of what that creation could be. That is my long answer to your question. Thank you very much for this answer. I really like the wording through the prism of uh, one's own being. This was nice. Uh, Gitte, what do you think of the role of art and cultural exchange? To me, art is something that opens up different questions in a different settings. So it's a bit of a meta space of our societies. I like going into galleries and being confronted with um, or galleries or art spaces or um, anywhere where art is produced. I think it should be produced more outside of uh, galleries. Yeah, I think art can ask questions in different ways with different materials, addressing different areas of our mind, our bodies. And I also agree with Anastasia that there there's a critical function also of the arts in our society. That's at least what I find myself attracted to, art that makes me think, that might also stir up emotions that I'm not necessarily used to or that raise um, questions. So yeah, I think that art and artists can ask questions and can sort of put their fingers at the pulse of our time in a way that other media can't. Um, and that for me is, um, is critical. And I also think that I am attracted to art that does that. Um, of course, there's also a way of saying l'art pour l'art, for instance, you know, where it's about, about aesthetics, the good, the beautiful. And to me, personally, that is not something that I respond to in a way that makes me want more. I, uh, I like art that, um, that raises questions. And I think that when you, your question was also about cultural exchange. So that is, to me, the intersection of art and artistic production and the international. And I think that's important because our world is growing closer together more and more. And our global society um, benefits if we know each other more and if we understand each other, if we see ourselves, if we see um, the world from different perspectives. And that's why I think there is an important role in artistic exchange and in enabling mobility and enabling also um, encounters and co-production between artists and art professionals from different uh, countries in the world. So I see this giving a new perspective and asking questions is important for both of you. Anastasia, I would like to stay with your personal experiences in the arts and culture sector right now. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your journey as an artist and how you did end up 
starting your project, Destructura? Sure. So since 2010, up until 2020, or even still now a little bit, I've been involved in the European Youth Parliament. I was a delegate, I was an official, I ran the NGO in Estonia as its president, and then I did the same in Russia as its director from Moscow for a year and a half. And I participated in international governments from governance from uh, Berlin. And this is something that shaped me more than any university school or other project. I think uh, European Youth Parliament, EYP, is a unique environment and a unique project that is worth trying to replicate. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, um, since I was six, I was in all sorts of art schools. <laughs> I um, started when I was in Russia, then I continued in Estonia. Um, and after a brief flirtation with a degree in uh, financial engineering, I stopped that and I decided to do a BA in fine arts. And then I did a bit of a master's in um, social design. And at some point, well, we all realized that the European Youth Parliament, the youth bit being key, it will not last forever. And even the people who are seriously engaged and do this as their second full-time job, they have to redirect their um, energy somewhere else. So did I. I started my uh, professional attempts and endeavors in the art world and quickly realized that the work environment and the work ethic I have grown to know and love in the European Youth Parliament was not really there in a lot of professional professional environments in the arts. And a lot of the thinking that I was encountering was that this is just the way it is. You have to transition to your working life and it's going to be different. However, my thinking was if I have known a working environment that was so motivating, so invigorating, and people were collaborating for free from different countries, putting insane hours in, creating something unique, um, looking to innovate and looking for new solutions, and all of that in an extremely supportive and nurturing environment, really, why should I say, okay, this was just a period and now I'm going to transition to something less optimal. Um, so my thinking was that right now I have the time, have some resources, have this network from the European Youth Parliament and some knowledge of the culture and art world. I'm going to try and do a project that brings more of this uh, valuable work ethic that I encountered into this field because I would really like to build a career in this area and I would like to do it in a way that allows me to thrive just like the European Youth Parliament did. And I really want to share it with other young professionals who are entering this world. And I keep hearing the same problems coming up from them. Um, so I worked in several art institutions and I did a couple of exhibitions um, and the problems were similar to what I hear my colleagues and friends now share. It's the nepotism, the funding, the dismissal of new ideas, things like you're too junior to be taken seriously. 
in the education sector, um, questions like, okay, this is lovely now in my master's, but what do I do later? How do I become an artist? Oh, this is something for you not to worry about now. It all makes it just so much more difficult for young people who want to pursue a career in the arts to then start. So with this experience, I then um, tried to get this project off the ground with the help of certain uh, bigger organizations quickly realized that this wasn't interesting for them. I was getting out of nose. Eventually, I uh, started working for a Kogo gallery in Tarto, and the director was very open to new ideas, and I'm still collaborating with them on certain projects. And so they started supporting my idea, and then it grew into something that needed its own organization. So I started a nonprofit, and now we are 15 plus international volunteers or employees who are working to make this happen. We have 40 plus partners from around Europe. Uh, the open call has just started for participants. So things have moved on and developed. What is the project about? So essentially we start now with getting a hundred young professionals from different sort of fields in the art world. So artists, photographers, curators, art historians, everybody who's going to be part of the art world in the years to come, putting them together in this project and starting with think tanks. We're going to divide the 100 people into 10 uh, groups, each focusing on a topic relevant in the art world. This is sort of to address this uh, missing knowledge that a lot of people have coming out of academies and universities where you don't know how to be an artist, you don't know how institutions collaborate and work together. So this one, let's say you have one think tank uh, who deals with the topic of funding. They're going to have several months to get in touch with our partners, get in touch with more experts to really understand how funding in the certain um, area of the arts works. And then 10 different groups focusing on 10 different topics. The topics are being decided by head moderators. It's now in the works. We're involving the partners to make them as relevant as possible to the actual climate now. And the second stage is a forum. So everybody comes together in Tallinn, 150 people more or less, with the officials and moderators and everybody who's organizing it. And each think tank is going to sit down together, decide as a group what problems they can narrow down within their research that they, as a group, think are relevant. And they're going to propose solutions. Uh, for three days, they're going to be working on this. And then in the middle of the forum, we have a general assembly where each think tank will share their problems and solutions with the whole group. And then us on the back end, we're going to compile all of the research and the problems and solutions into a report that we then hope to disseminate among decision makers, the media, as far as we can go. Then uh, the second stage sort of kicks in at that point. Um, they're going to now divide themselves into smaller groups according to their interests. That's what they're going to focus on. They're going to sit down for the following three to four days and start coming up with a project to do together including funding, communication, production, where to show it. And then the very last day is all of these groups, around 20, presenting what they have come up with so far. Then everybody leaves the forum. And for a year after that, they're going to be actually realizing the projects they set out to do with some mentorship. There's going to be a check-in session in the Netherlands. And once everything's done, wrapped up and shown around Europe, we're going to collect feedback 
from these young people asking you, okay, so you did a lot of uh, theory research at the beginning. Now you have practical experience of doing this in Europe as a, an international group. How did it go? What did you learn? What would you like to address as an issue? And what would you like to share with future generations and people who are interested in doing something similar in the future? Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Can I ask a question? Of course. <laughs> Go for it. Um, thanks, Anastasia, for explaining uh, Destructura um, to us. I think it sounds uh, really amazing. Um, and your background um, of having these transnational experiences also allows you to yeah, bring in and create something new from these experiences. What I would like to know is when I looked at the website and when I tried to understand the project, it looked like that sort of providing information to young artists um, about how the art world, art world works and how the cultural sector works. Like how does funding work? How do you get access to, to this sector? That that played an important role. Did I understand that correctly? And that you basically started there and then also said, we also want to put this into practice, which is why groups can then also sort of test and um, uh, t yeah, test ideas uh, while you're also observing and evaluating that? So this first bit, you understood correctly. The idea is to sort of bridge the gap that we have identified in a lot of people's education where you have, you know how to paint, how to be a painter. You don't know how to show, be an artist and how to create connections. This was the starting point. We wanted to do a, an event that would help people to understand how it actually works, create some connections, peer-to-peer uh, -peer support and work from there. And this comes from the European Youth Parliament. This is how most events are built. You have committees that are based on the EP format and they discuss topics. What we wanted to improve with this format is something uh, a lot of us have found frustrating is that you work for 10 days, you have a resolution that reflects problems and solutions um, inherent to a certain topic. They are sent to the European Parliament and they are disseminated a little bit. But that is it. There is no tangible outcome that you can then say, here, I did this. This is my work. You can go and see it. Because the resolution is particularly dry and not really interesting for people to go and say, hey, read this. And to address this, our solution was to have these practical groups. And it also made particularly um, a lot of sense to for the art world, because everything we know uh, of it is project-based. You do need to collaborate. If, let's say if you're making an exhibition, you have to work with the gallery based on this project, with your curator, with management, and so on. Um, if you have people who are teaming up with you, you have to involve them, coordinate this. And it seemed like a particularly valuable experience to make it easier for our participants uh, because we have our partners and the support system to go and do it, to just really um, have, if it's, if, if it's their first international experience with lots of people from different countries, then that's that. If it's the second one that they can learn from each other and if, um, if they want to try something new, that's a good environment to do so. So yes, the answer to your question is we started with the idea of learning more about the structures and how things work and moved on to improving 
this bit that we already know how to do with a new bit that is really more of a uh, first time we're doing it. And we, I think it's going to be way more valuable than just understanding structures and networking for a couple of days in Tallinn. Thank you. Gitte, when hearing uh, the challenges that um, Anastasia just described, do you see any parallels to your work at IFA and the projects um, you're working on there right now? When I reflected on uh, Destructura before uh, we started this um, this podcast, I was really amazed by this um, approach to learn and confront yourselves with um, maybe areas of of the cultural sector that aren't as well formed as they could be. And um, because I think you didn't go into so much detail about it now, Anastasia, you, you mentioned it in the beginning, you know, that, um, that uh, opportunities are open to fewer and fewer people, for instance. And when I look at the cultural sector, I, I think it is quite um, idiosyncratic in a way. On the one hand, you know, we want um, artists to hold their fingers on the pulse of society and we want to be critical about society. But on the other hand, the art sector itself doesn't necessarily put into practice what it criticizes in the over, overall society. And so we have working conditions that are exploitive. We don't really think about the how um, how we practice art or how we manage um, art or how we produce art. But we're very, yeah, we're very concerned with the what. And, uh, and that's what I was really amazed by the structura is that it takes that into account while also not forgetting about the what. And um, at IFA, I think what, what I'm, I mean, I started heading this organization four months ago and I'm still learning about um all the projects that are going on and the amazing initiatives that um, my colleagues are realizing. And I'm looking at it also with this viewpoint of, are we doing the, the right thing and are we doing it in the right way? Are we transparent enough, for instance, in our own funding um, procedures? Uh, just yesterday, we had a meeting about it, uh, looking at how different projects under our roof have different approaches to the topic. And something that became quite clear is that newer projects or set up their funding structures or their um, criteria for selection in a more transparent and fair way, taking into account participation, equality, diversity, um, fairness, in a different way than projects that have been running um, successfully for years or even decades. And I think this mirrors quite well how the shift um, in our sector has already started. Thank you. What I'm personally really interested about, in fact, is the role of the pandemic when you talk about these challenges. So does the pandemic create new problems or does it just bring existing problems to light? Yeah, Gitte. I think what's very clear is that the pandemic has highlighted what has already been a bit off in our in our sector for instance for instance these precarious working conditions what became very clear is that um, our leaders have called upon the arts and have highlighted the role of the arts and how important the arts are for society arts and education and even the care care sector um, but that is uh, in contrast to 
what it's like for the people who actually make the sector live and work and who who create. Um, and I think the creators are the ones that probably were hit worse by this uh, pandemic because us in institutions, we're well off and we were so super privileged um, because our funding continues. Um, we get paid. Uh, we continue to get paid um, because our, our working structures have been set up in a quite consistent way. Whereas in the art world, especially the, the more independent you get, the less structured it is and the less safe um, it is to produce. And I think this has become clear um, and it, in a way that it can't be ignored anymore. So I think the pandemic has not necessarily created new problems, although, of course, you know, now that we don't really know when we can go back to producing fully, of course, that's also something, a new level of precariousness that has entered this space. On the other hand, I also think that this digital shift has been um, amplified through the pandemic. And I think that um, arts organizations and artists, both in the production, but also in the in the how um, that um, yeah digital media and um, doing things over an online space, there's much more practice um, and knowledge and also hardware in it now. Mm -hmm. Anastasia, what's your view on that and the role of the pandemic? I think um, that the pandemic itself has been horrendous for um, a lot of aspects of our lives. However, the good thing that came out of it is that this is now a conversation. And a lot of people are ready for change, not necessarily only in the art sector. I'm also working with a startup in Finland called The Next Gen Project. And the premise there is that, is that there's a new kind of leadership that's sought after. Young, talented uh, people are looking to start their own business over going to work with an employee whose employer, sorry, whose practices are suboptimal. Um, it's basically doing the same thing as me with UIP, looking at what you're offered at the workplace and then turning away and saying, I can do better myself. And this is a crisis for big employers. How do you attract talent? And I think it has just become a brighter conversation after the pandemic, the shift to homework, working from home and reevaluating what has been happening in all industries so far. So we also have a podcast, The Podcastura, and one of our guests was Cyril Pesanti. He works as a communication director at the Opera of Rouen. And we were talking about his visit to students at Sciences Po and how different they are and how, how much less they almost care about the structures. They believe more that they can do their own thing. Their thinking is very different. And I think that the pandemic has brought this question of, okay, we've been doing it one way so far. Here are all other ways of doing it. Let's push the restart button and see what we can change. There's more talk of universal income, 
Uh, in LA, they have had uh, universal income programs for artists. Um, there's been a lot of support programs around Europe for artists. It's a conversation now, whereas beforehand it was a kitchen conversation. So I believe it's it's a major shaking for the world in general, and it brings about a lot of things that merit a conversation. Thank you. From a kitchen conversation <laughs> to a public conversation. <laughs> um, Gitte already mentioned this move to the digital sphere during the pandemic. And um, with Europe Tech's part, we, of course, focus on the opportunities of digital solutions for cultural workers. And I would be interested to hear what you think of the potential. So to what extent can digital tools help support artists? And what are their limitations? Maybe Anastasia, since you were involved in our project workshops in which we partly developed such a tool, maybe you can say how you rate the potential of digital solutions. I think it depends on a certain number of steps that now succeed the launch of the platform. I believe that there's a lot of potential. And I also know that there are several difficulties. One of them being, you know, you have people in the art world who want to make it in the art world, but the bigger, fancier art world is so exclusive, consolidated, and it frowns upon such initiatives. I have had a different feedback just regarding the fact that I have such a diverse background on numerous occasions and different levels, people saying, so what do you want to be? Do you want to be an artist at, or do you want to organize? Or do you want to go into politics or do you want to do art? There's a lot of this uh, small mold that people want you to fit in. And such a platform, I think, needs to take into account this particularity of the art world and maybe engage more people who are on the upper echelons of what is considered prestigious in the art world. Um, to understand more of how, who is the artist and the curator and the art world person who gets to show at a big museum why, how it works, what they're looking for, how they function. I think um, a lot of EU-funded things I have been involved in in, in, invite me, the kind of person that I am, very you know active, different kinds of background. But the art world is more reluctant to invite me. So I think if if you if you look into that gap and I try to address it, it would make the efficacy of the platform way greater. And when it comes to the funding um, aspect, I think I have been to the platform. I think it already helps. A lot. It is focused on public funding and grants in particular. I think if there was a section that explored different ways of funding that are available nowadays, like crowdfunding, uh, patronage and um, sponsorship agreements for certain kinds of projects in the arts, it would broaden the horizons of people who enter there and make them see it as an option. My experience has been in the arts um, that people don't see, for example, during a partnership with some firm, if they have, I don't know, if you're doing a project that is based on 
trying to tackle climate change, um, you very don't very often think of um, teaming up with like um, wind, wind renewable energy company, but you can try. It's not guaranteed you're going to get anything out of it, but it is always an option. And we know it in the European Youth Parliament. We have topics that are relevant to different companies, and we try to create relationships with those companies. I think just broadening the spectrum of how things can be funded on the platform and giving some advice on how to pursue those uh, lanes um, would, again, make the impact greater. Thank you also for already uh, taking a look at the platform. <laughs> I'll talk a little bit more in detail about it later. But Gitte, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about your take on the potential of digital tools. I think potential in general of the internet is <laughs> great and unlimited. I think we see it that it's a great tool to connect people because it doesn't matter where you are on the globe or even in cities um, or in the countryside, you can access the internet, even though, I mean, this is so easily said, but actually there is also a digital divide that we should also take into account. You know, not everyone has the uh, equipment or the internet connection or the money to buy um, internet connection. Uh, but, you know, in general, I think... Um, especially offering peer-to-peer -peer learning, I think what you're trying to do with the platform, but also other kinds of learning, more structured ways of learning. Um, I think there's um, sort of anything that offers a service, really, you know, where you can learn. Um, there, there's a lot of potential. I wonder um, if um, creating your own platform and putting a lot of resources into, into making um, an offer um, for exchange, um, if that's, yeah, I wonder what is, what is the benefit really, you know, um, in terms of um, effectiveness also, because we're, I mean, the internet is also changing quickly. We're used to these uh, huge platforms uh, that are dominating the market that are extremely user-friendly and fast and uh, based on visuals and um, easy to use. And so I wonder, um, you know, what you can you can create on top of that or for a specific group uh, that that creates a benefit or an added value for the users. And I, I guess it would be through having really good information, like Anastasia was saying, even more information, even more um, sort of targeted to to your target group. I also see that learning on the Internet, I follow um, certain topics and I see that it's based on people, you know, I mean, this is a storytelling uh, rather than institutions um, offering, um, offering things on the internet. So I wonder how you can um, sort of use that as well uh, to attract um, more people. In the end, I think that as humans, we're social beings, so we will always need direct exchange and meeting in a physical sphere. Um, while at the same time, it's true that so there's so 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 much you can do already on the internet, um, on the internet, that big thing that we're talking into right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would like to stay focused on our um, workshop discussions because many of the artists um, from across Europe in these workshops mentioned financing and project funding as central challenges. And 
One of the participants summed up the status quo as, I quote, everything revolves around funding rather than artistic work. And another one specified, this is my favorite quote, uh, because it's very precise. My problem is the access to European funding. I want to apply for an EU program, but the category director that fits me is missing on the form. They have now been working on this button for almost two years. Anastasia, when talking about funding, what are the main changes that you personally would like to see? Funding is a pool of misery. It is true. So, okay, now with Destructura, we are applying for different funds. We have uh, Erasmus Plus now supporting the event, and we got it from our second attempt. However, again, coming from my previous experiences in EYP and just going to events and being aware of what things are going on, it is a pool of misery. For example, um, Erasmus Plus, it is an unwritten rule, and we were made to understand that uh, if the fees paid to all contractors collectively, so accountant, designer, project managers, everybody uh, exceeds 20%, your application is not going to be taken seriously. On the other end of the spectrum, I was talking to a partner from the Netherlands, and she was saying that the funding they get from the state in the Netherlands uh, is structured in a way that if you don't write enough of a fee for the person organizing and the artists, your application is not going to be taken seriously. There are language requirements. There are mm, particular, so much depends on who is going to be evaluating your work. One particular frustration with uh, Erasmus Plus is the platform. The first time we applied, it crashed several times and we had to wait for, uh, I think, three plus months for a response because the platform was acting up and that has been the case for many years. EOIP endeavors also have had this problem. Um, so in the end, we got a negative response essentially three weeks before the deadline for the second round. So a lot of sleepless nights were put into improving the application and applying again. And as an artist, my uh, experience with funding is also quite uh, bleak. <laughs> I did an exhibition in 2020. It was a project that started in 2018 from a gallery in Italy. Then I went to Armenia to a big event. And then I did an exhibition with portraits, video, interactive stuff and uh, text. Essentially, the topic was I asked 100 young people in Europe, what would they improve in their home? It could be as small as having more trees in their street, or it could be a different foreign policy. I got a lot of replies and I narrowed the down into 52 cards with their written answers. And I did six portraits of these people uh, depicting them and what they wanted, their wish on there. So it was a big mix of different things. And it seemed like it was a good opportunity to make the European dimension emphasized and get some funding on that front. All of my attempts failed. Uh, I did apply for several uh, um, sources of funding. I ended up putting over 5,000 euros of my own money to make this happen, more with travel and all of the two-year uh, research. I did side jobs as a designer, photographer, uh, translating from French to Russian, uh, selling paintings. I did a crowdfunding campaign. 
that got a uh, thousand euros in like very contorted ways because Estonia is not on the list for the platform. So I had to go for France. Essentially, I financed it. I did all of the communication. Um, the uh, gallery that eventually showed it, uh, I even printed um, curatorial texts and I had a box of them in the back room. The day I came back to, or the last day I came back to take down the exhibition, there were four packs of these texts in the back room and only one in Estonian uh, or only one in English and zero in Estonian in the actual gallery space. Whereas I had asked them to, you know, keep replenishing the supply. Uh, I got a hundred euros of an artist fee and 500 from the state um, as a support to make this happen. And in the end, my experience was that, you know, funding was my pocket and a lot of extra work. I, at the end, I basically worked all days, no weekends. I only took two days off because I had a migraine. I did an open studio in a different gallery. It was insane. It was a lot of work. I had four interns, a curator, and I managed to pull it off with this team because I had the experience of running events before and could do it on the budget end. It is, it, yes, funding is a big question that needs to be taken care of for any project you do. And it's easier if you already have an in with a certain funder. And if you're known and if you're working with a big gallery, it's much harder if you're new and you're trying to do something ambitious. Okay. Thanks, Anastasia, for sharing that experience. I think uh, that ex that shows quite well um, how much time and energy and resources go into finding money. And all of that work is, of course, unpaid, which uh, brings us back to what I said before, you know, that the art sector is, is it's, it's so precariously organized. And I guess, you know, as you were talking about it, I wondered why is talking about funding also... Why does that take up so much space? And I think the reason is because there's not enough funding, especially when you look at these EU funds that you were talking about. The reason why um, yeah, access to it is so difficult is because uh, competition is extremely high, which is because there's so little money in the first place um, that um, people compete for. And I, yeah, as you were talking, I was wondering, you know, what, what could be a, a solution It's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's easy to say we need more money in the arts. And I think there's absolutely truth to it. And I, as I, when I was working in Brussels, I was much more involved in, in sort of lobbying or um, yeah, lobbying for, for more funding for the arts. And we need to provide politicians with, with arguments. At the same time, it's also it's not so hard to explain the role of culture um, in our societies, we talked about that earlier um, in the conversation. And maybe connected uh, to the funding issue is this access issue that, Anastasia, you were also talking about, that um, it's difficult to enter into prestigious places. Um, of course, you know, why do you want to enter into, into these places? Um, so you want to participate in, in this um, symbolic capital maybe that they provide. Um, you want to gain reputation, you want to, I don't know, maybe also increase your visibility and then also increase um, outreach and impact. And I think this is linked to a question also of aesthetics. And sometimes 
or yeah, maybe to start anew. What I like about some of the European funds is that since so many different um, ideas of what is what is art from different European countries are combined in the EU sense, um, none of them are dominating. And so different ways of evaluating an artist's work have to be found, which is why sometimes, you know, it is okay to say, I am an artist, that's why I can apply for this funding. When you look at um, a German space, for instance, there's an understanding of high quality, as we call it, uh, that is often unreflected and it's sort of taken for granted. There's some sort of idea of universal aesthetics, which is, of course, not universal. And I think this is what you're knock knocking at, Anastasia, when you feel like you don't have access to this because you might not play into this sense of aesthetics and into this idea of yeah, social or symbolic capital that you come with. Or that, yeah, I think the art world is changing. I think there are um, institutions that have uh, staff that also looks at this universal aesthetic, for instance, critically. And I think what helps is also international experience, because once you have seen what um, is produced um, by dancers or choreographers in a space like uh, Congo, then it becomes quite clear that, you know, why what is what is better than the other and i don't think it, none of it is any better it, there's different ways of looking at art and understanding art and also evaluating art so yeah funding um is such a big um issue in and time consumer also in um building an artistic career and time consuming practice that goes unnoticed um largely but also projects in itself, I think, might also be part of the problem because that means projects are time-limited interventions, right? And so, of course, if you provide uh, funding for projects, that means that there's always a cycle, that it's always, you know, there's a beginning and an end. And I think that's great because I think you can bring innovation into our society through through that but of course it also means that you have to reapply and reapply and reapply and make sure that you have the next project going on while at the same time in europe we have i mean luckily we're super privileged um, we have big institutions like operas and museums that have structured funding <laughs> that is renewed year by year and the people working in these institutions, they have salaries that are, they have tariffs also or um, regulated hours that they work in. And so the sector in itself is also highly um, diverse, which obviously doesn't really help um, artists like Anastasia um, to get a foot in. Yeah, I think what the big opera houses, museums, and contemporary art centers have that most aspiring artists or young artists do not are fundraisers. And, you know, you have patrons, you have different sources of funding. Um, the Paris Opera, yes, it gets a big chunk of governmental money, but they have a number of contributors who are interested in seeing that institution thrive. I think 
for the art world, we need more fundraisers who understand how money goes about. There's also an issue of how the art and culture sector is seen by potential sponsors. And I believe that the reputation of the arts in general in our society is pretty poor. I remember um, there was this viral speech by a far-right politician, albeit, but still they were mocking artists' work, um, saying, look, this painting is untitled. Does it mean that the artist ran out of ideas? Or this one is called Cow. It is red canvas. How does this make sense? Do you really want to continue funding the arts from your own pocket, lovely people? That barrier between understanding what the arts do and what is the importance in society at large, I think, also makes it harder for for people to get their value in dollars to produce what they want to produce in the future. I think that's an interesting point about private money. I'm not sure if it's better than public money, because public money comes with regulations. Um, and in the, you know, regulations can also be understood in a positive sense. There is a a joint or a communal understanding of what the what money should be spent on, whereas with private funders you have none of that. And I come from a city uh, Stuttgart in the south of Germany, which is quite wealthy. There's there are a lot of um, companies uh, that have been attributing to the wealth of the area for decades. And um, and so what you were mentioning, you know, the opera and uh, other. Traditional art institutions do have these circle of friends, circles of friends that support the opera. It comes with a lot of power and it's sort of unregulated power in a way, because so easily you can say, oh, I give this money, but I want to know exactly what it's for or only for this artist or only for this cause. And this is just in the, in the, in the small framework of an opera, you know. Uh, when you look at larger NGOs and what they're doing, um, there's no regulation. You know, I mean, private money can go anywhere. And I think that's also something to take seriously. And I also think that the amount of resources that are put into um, finding public money, uh, sorry, sorry, finding private money is also, you know, it's also resources. And it's like, yeah, you need to be a certain way in order to be understood or to be successful. I think all of that is true and should be explored and we can definitely become better and more professional at it. At the same time, I also really clearly see the limits of this. And I do, I would wish, you know, that we had a bit more of a, of a um, public, well, sorry, of private uh, funding tradition, like in other countries from the Anglo-Saxon world, where it's also okay to give money and then say, you are the professionals and you do with this money, what you deem right. If we had that, I would be all for sort of milking more uh, money from these, um, from companies. Yeah. And of course, there's exceptions. You know, there's there are, there are private um, foundations that do amazing work and that have really amazing regulations about how the money should be spent. I do see, however, that this power issue in, the, in private money is it's something new that I'm learning about. And I find it quite interesting because who has that money? You know, it's um, families that um, have 
maybe been been around for a long time. They belong to a certain strata of society. Uh, it's not young people with a background like yours, for instance, Anastasia, you know, with a very international background, come from Russia or in Germany, you know, we have um, lots of people who have um, Turkish background, for instance. It's not those people that then get a say in how um, our or arts organizations are uh, run or what kind of programs they offer. I was thinking, you know, for IFA, I'd much rather have a circle of young people um, supporting us and thinking with us about what our work should be like, what we should do, than to put money and or to put our resources and time into talking with with wealthy people in the in the realm of of our organization. I, you know, just also with where does my time go? You know, what kind of circles of uh, of support would I want to form? And um, yeah, so there we're back at you know funding in the large sense and and how time consuming it can be and that it's work done. Mm -hmm. In my case, not for free, but um, just also priorities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, since we were already talking about private versus public money and regulation, let's talk politics for a second. What do you think? What role can national governments play in supporting artists? And what should take place at a higher, for example, European level? Gitte, what is your opinion on this? I remember looking at um, our political leaders um, in the EU and uh, or through the lens of who does what for culture. And you see huge differences in the traditions of our um, of, of the EU member states, for instance. We know that uh, Angela Merkel, she sometimes or she often, I think maybe every year, went to see uh, the op opera, opera festivals. Um, Emmanuel Macron, he uh, uh, held a speech in Ouagadougou announcing uh, unilaterally that um, art objects should be uh, restituted. Then we have um, Italy, where the, uh, the late uh, David Sassoli, the um, uh, president of the European Parliament, openly engaged in events or conferences of the of the art sector and um, in Italy there's strong support for cultural heritage for instance on 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 the highest level um, of political leadership and I think we could have more of that and a better understanding of what culture is and can do for a society um, on those on those levels on the EU or on the multilateral levels What helps is to have that same support. And I mean, the EU does or they, the EU coordinates uh, the activities of the member states and uh, the EU can um, enter into fields where it can do a better job, basically, than the member states alone. And so they can fully reach that potential by laying the groundwork for um, regulations, for instance, or helping the arts become less precarious, for instance. And I also want to say, I mean, there is an even higher or broader level, which is the UN. So, for instance, there's the UN Charter or the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, saying that access should be granted in all spheres of society to persons with disabilities. And I think when we look at the art sector, um, we have a long way to go to implement this policy or this convention. And it's not to the individual artists or um, theaters to incorporate these ideas into their projects. It's, it's a political task to do. 
And so this is where we need governments. And when I look at the uh, status of inclusion um, in our theaters and art spaces in Germany, for instance, there is a long way to go. Thank you. To wrap up our conversation, I would like to ask both of you one final question. If you had one wish for cultural policy, what would that one wish be? Who wants to start? Anastasia? Mm, I'd need a second to think. One uh, not very thought through kind of whimsical idea. Again, going back to funding. I know that a lot of parliament-funded, commission-funded events have, you know, you apply for a year with a budget. And if at the end of the year you have actually spent less than you applied for, it is not very good makes you less likely to get the same amount next year. There's the whole race to vamp up the spending. And on certain occasions, it has been asking the hotel to charge you more than they originally wanted just to comply with the budget or spending huge amounts on presents to the speakers instead of fees. There's a lot of um, wiggle room just in order to comply with the original budget and the other, at the end of the year. Uh, and it's kind of sy systemically encouraged. This is what you're supposed to do. Uh, it's like an unspoken uh, truth. What if we flipped that on its head and said, if you spent less than you originally wanted, the surplus is going to go towards certain goals. So instead of encouraging, you know, spending money frivolously to reach a number that was originally stated, you encourage spending money um, frugally and to the needs of the project. And if there's a surplus, it has a stated purpose and it's not going to influence somebody's chances of getting the same amount of money next year. That would be my one um, small idea. Thank you. Gitte, what is your one wish? Anastasia, I think that's a great wish to have because I think I would think even bigger and say that this paradigm of austerity should be substituted by a paradigm of impact. You know, we should measure our projects by the impact they have, not not so much by how uh, cost, cost effective they are. Because I think this idea that you have to be very careful with your spending and uh, very exact and always choose the, the cheapest option sort of has as an underlying principle that there's um, mistrust and that you would sort of be effective and using money frugally. Um, but yeah, so that's just a comment on what you said. I think um, when I look at the art sector, what would help is to have transparent and fair processes of hiring and appointing people in, in important positions, be it as directors or as managers in institutions, but also in juries and other um, uh, bodies of power uh, when it comes to funding and um, award um, processes. Because I think if you do that and if you have more diverse um, people and uh, people with a different way of understanding also the art sector, maybe less elitist, for instance, less uh, formed by this idea of the genius artist or by um, universal aesthetics, then uh, a lot of things, um, a lot of change and innovation can happen in the art sector. That would be my one wish. Thank you both for these 
ideas right now, but also for your thoughts and stories so far. It was really interesting and I learned a lot. Something we always ask our guests at the end of each episode is if they have any recommendations for our listeners. Hence, do you want to share anything with our listeners today? Gitte, do you want to start? Yeah, I can do that. Um, as I was preparing for the podcast, I was actually thinking, because in my spare time, I hardly look at cultural policy or cultural relations on this sort of reflective level, in English, at least not recently. And so I dug around a little bit. And uh, there's a network um, called IETM. It's a network for the perform for performing arts sector. It's global and uh, the head office is based in Brussels and they do amazing work on um, on policy and on influencing also EU policy uh, for the art sector and they have last year published a report called supporting relevance ideas and strategies for inclusive fair and flexible arts funding it's written by Milica Illich and Fatin Fahad uh, published by IETM I had a quick look through, and I think they really dissect the art sector, what its problems are today, and offering ideas and solutions or strategies for the art sector become to become more fair and more flexible and more uh, inclusive. Cool. Thank you. Anastasia, do you have a recommendation for us? Yes. I was thinking about this from the perspective of a young person trying to make it in the art world, maybe not specifically in Europe, but in general to give an idea to uh, viewers and listeners of what it could be. And there is a film called The Art of Making It. I'm not sure if it's wide, widely available yet. It's doing its round in its rounds in um, screenings at an uh, at festivals. I think it should be widely available this year. Um, but it asks the question, what does it take to succeed as a young artist today? And finds that the answer is quite complex and somewhat bleak. Um, I think it just gives you an idea of what you are expected to be and who is expecting this of you and how the scenario of trying to make it as a young person in the arts would look like. Thank you for this recommendation. Now we have something to read, something to watch. And I will add uh, my personal recommendation um, for our listeners, which is the European Hub for Civic Engagement, our online platform for exchange and networking, um, which is open to all civil society actors. Just last week, we launched uh, the final product of our Europe Takes Part workshops. And all users of the European Hub for Civic Engagement have now access to a new funding module that includes three things. First, a message board to get inspiration, to find project partners, or to get peer support in the area of funding. Uh, second, we have a funding search where you can find a collection of funding opportunities, private and public. And third, a funding checklist where you get feedback and assistance in preparing project proposals. So feel free to take a look and uh, please share your feedback with us. Of course, everything that we just mentioned here will be linked in our show notes. So we're already coming to the end of today's podcast. 
Thank you, Anastasia and Gitte, for being here with us today. I'm sure we could have continued talking much longer. So thank you a lot for being with us today. Thank you for having us. It was a very interesting conversation. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much. I also enjoyed this conversation a lot. And learning about your initiatives, Anastasia, was really great. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for listening. We hope to welcome you back soon at Talking Progress. This episode is part of our project Europe Takes Part, carried out by Das Progressive Zentrum together with the Goethe Institute and supported by the German Foreign Office. Europe Takes Part aims to empower artists and cultural workers in Europe and bring their situation into the focus of public debate. Learn more at progressives-zentrum.org or check the link in our show notes. This podcast was produced by Nikki Hoffmann for Das Progressive Zentrum with music by Armin Moalem. It was supported by Sophie Borkel. A very big thanks to all of you. My name is Rafaela Hoppach. Thanks for listening. And catch you at the next episode of Talking Progress, the podcast that explores progressive ideas for Germany, Europe and transatlantic spaces.